Hello, hello. Welcome back to Peak Northwest, an outdoors and travel podcast by The Oregonian and Oregon Live, dedicated to the adventure and exploration of our beautiful Pacific Northwest. I'm Jamie Hale. And I'm Jim Ryan. And together we take you to some of the most beautiful places here in the Pacific Northwest, discussing where to go, what to do, and things to see. And by now, folks, you know what we're up to these days. That's right. We are still staying close to home, so on, so forth, in our closets, etc. The thing is, though, we actually today have some news to share. Yeah, so we're recording this podcast Friday, May 8th. I had to double check my date there for a second. And earlier this week, select state parks started to reopen around Oregon. And by the time you're listening to this, some more parks and outdoor areas will be back open as well. That's right. We are at 26 state park sites reopened right now as of Friday. But we're expecting more to reopen next week and some of these national forests and other park sites to follow suit soon after. So I've been keeping track of all this, and I'm sure many of you have as well. So we're not going to dive into all of that right now, what's open, what's closed, the specifics, because that information is bound to change. Yeah, but Jamie has put together what I think is probably like the most helpful single document that we can have right now for the outdoor enthusiasts among us, kind of a running list of what outdoor spaces have reopened. And you folks can go on to OregonLive.com slash travel to find that story. Jamie's going to keep it updated. We'll drop it in the show notes as well. So Jamie, let me ask you this. Kind of what does all this mean for you personally, other than being super swamped at work right now? (laughs) Yeah, I've been super swamped, but also it's meant that I've been able to get back outside. When the state parks officially reopened on Wednesday, I was able to get back out to Tryon Creek State Park here in Portland, which is one of the few places with pretty extensive hiking trail that's reopened in the state park so far. And Jim, I have to tell you, it was the first time I've been hiking since this whole lockdown started happening six weeks ago, and it was a phenomenal experience. When I went there the first thing in the morning, it wasn't very crowded. So I will say that. But I did see some other people on the trail. When I did, when I didn't, it was just so good to be out there in nature again. You know, hearing the birds chirp, being among the trees, hearing the rainfall and the forest canopy, it was just such a great experience to be back out there. Sounds great. And honestly, kind of a reminder of some of the things that at least I know I've let myself take for granted at times to now kind of experience that and reacquaint yourself with how special it is, is a cool feeling. I've got to imagine. Yeah. And I think we'll have a lot more opportunity to do some more of that. I think people still need to remain patient because a lot of these places aren't just going to reopen all at once. Mm -hmm. Oregon State Parks and the U.S. Forest Service have both said that this is going to be a phased reopening, which means that some places are going to reopen. Some places are going to stay closed. So be patient until your favorite spots reopen. And even when they do, you know, consider going at off hours or, you know, weekdays or going to some other places that you maybe haven't been to before. Maybe some of these smaller trails that reopen to spread people out a little bit more. That's going to be more important than ever right now as we continue to deal with the pandemic. Yeah, because I've got to imagine, right, a lot of people have been in this, well, everyone is in this situation. And for those of us who want to get outside on trails and into parks and to nature, as places reopen, I would imagine we're going to see pretty heavy crowds at a lot of 
these newly reopened parks. I think that's fair to assume, especially because the Columbia River Gorge and the Oregon Coast are two areas that the governor has specifically said are going to remain closed longer than other spots because they are probably the most crowded regions for recreational travel in Oregon. So with those still closed, these other spots might see a little bit more traffic than they usually get. So watch out for that as well. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like pick and choose where you go and when you do it. And then once you're there, Jamie, it's important, I think more probably now than ever, to be a good steward of the experience for everyone. And you probably know best, what should we be doing when we go out? in nature right now into these parks and onto trails. Social distancing is the big thing that they keep hammering home. So that means staying six feet apart from people who are not from your own household. State officials have said to not go recreate with people who aren't in your household. So that would mean no meeting up with friends, no gathering in big groups. Of course, on trails, it's really difficult to maintain that six feet of social distance when you're passing people too. I've been seeing a lot of people as you pass, if you're not wearing a face mask, people doing all these kinds of gymnastics to hide their face or turn away. So I find it easier to just wear a face mask when I'm out there or to have something I could pull up really quickly when I pass someone on the trail. Oregon State Parks has said that they want people people to wear face masks in their parks. Governor Brown has said that face masks are basically optional, encouraged but optional in public. So it's kind of up to each person as to whether or not they want to wear a face mask out when hiking. I think it's just a good idea. And I know that personally, I feel a lot more at ease when I'm wearing a face mask. Also, I think people need to consider that restrooms might be closed. Mm. So keep that in mind and keep in mind that there might not be hand sanitizer or soap where you're going. So make sure to bring your own water, bring your own hand sanitizer and, you know, be prepared to use the bathroom outdoors in a respectful and responsible way if necessary. Basically, the message is be self-sufficient, be as courteous as possible to others, and as always, be a good steward of the place you're visiting. Totally. Sounds like. Absolutely, Jim. Jamie, so we're not going to spend too much time on current updates or current affairs about the outdoors because this is our last episode of our Campfire Stories series. It's been a lot of fun, and we've loved hearing your stories and telling ours. But it's time to move on to some of the other exciting things we have planned for the coming weeks. But we're not done yet. We want to keep hearing from you all about your campfire stories, no matter what they might be. And we'll talk some more about that later. But for now, we have two great tales for our big campfire stories finale. Yeah, we've been talking for weeks, Jamie, maybe even months, I don't know, with Dave Killen, one of our producers, about some of his travels. And we've saved perhaps maybe the grandest of them all for our final campfire stories episode. Dave, no pressure. How are you, man? Hey, guys. Doing well. Good. So you have for us kind of a story with many twists and turns and so much so where I don't even know necessarily how to categorize it. It's not quite a road trip story. It's not a misadventure entirely. What's the very basics to start? What's kind of the premise of this story here? I think at its core, it's the story of uh, three dumb young white men. (laughs) (laughs) 
But the story begins about a year after I graduated from college, which was, I graduated in 2000, so this was 2001, and my younger brother Scott had just graduated himself, and my parents decided it would be a good idea to send him to stay with me for a while. I was living in New York City, and he had gone to college in Idaho, so they wanted him to get a little more exposure, I guess. And Scott landed in New York City on September 8th, 2001. <laughs> so oh things changed very quickly, and really just in a matter of days of course my job was gone scott's return flight to portland was gone and not entirely unlike the situation we find ourselves in now everything just seemed completely different and you just really had no idea what was going to happen next and uh in some ways that led to this adventure or the first part of this adventure which involved a friend of mine named mark and i should note that none of us me scott or mark really are the least bit outdoorsy. Mark is a native New Yorker, and Scott and I grew up in a not terribly outdoorsy family. But Mark had always wanted to climb Mount Washington, which is in New Hampshire. And as someone who grew up on the West Coast, I always had considered East Coast mountains to be kind of a joke. You know, anyone referring to a mountain, I would not really, you know, it's like, ah, if it doesn't have snow on top of it year-round, it's not a mountain. But Mount Washington is famous for having, they claim, the worst weather in the world at the top. And it's, you know, it was sort of the 2001 version of YOLO. We just figured, hey, (laughs) what do we got to lose? Let's go climb this mountain. And so I want to interject here at this point. So you're in New York City. This massive, terrible tragedy has just happened. And how did you kind of connect your current reality of living in the city to we're hopping out to the mountains right now? And did you even have the stuff to make that happen? No, we were woefully unprepared. Um, The (laughs) biggest thing was that Mark had a car. And that was a rarity in New York, this beat up old Buick. And I think he, I can kind of fix cars. So he thought of me as being useful uh, in a couple of ways to come along the way. But yeah, I looking back on it, it's shocking how little we thought about it. And I don't know how much of that I can attribute to the fact that we just had our whole world upended by the September 11th attacks, or just, again, us being dumb young men. But I don't remember any preparation. I remember basically a a loose plan that we had to get up really early one morning and meet up with Mark and drive up north out of the city. And frankly, that's all. (laughs) It's it's a shame looking back on it, but that's pretty much it. We didn't have... You know, also, it was September. So we weren't expecting bad weather. But still, I mean, I'm looking at a picture right now of the three of us at the base of Mount Washington. I'm wearing a long sleeve t-shirt. We're all three wearing cargo pants. Scott and Mark are wearing lightweight hoodies. That's what we had. Wait, did you have like bags with gear or, or, you know, water at least? I I don't remember bringing water. I think we had, (laughs) I think we had a couple of backpacks. I know we brought a bottle of whiskey. <laughs> but that, uh, yeah, it's, again, the kind of thing you do when you're, I guess I was 24. I mean, honestly, 24, I should have been old enough to know better. <laughs> so you alluded to maybe some things going haywire. So continue with us here. So we're driving down to, or up to Mount Washington. Yeah, well, the drive up was pretty uneventful. If I remember right, we stopped somewhere to buy maybe some gloves, like those, you know, stretchy gloves with our real, you know, serious (laughs) preparation at that point. But we got to the mountain, you know, that same morning and basically just started right up. And what happened was 
it started to snow, and we had not expected that at all. If we had bothered to check any sort of weather report, maybe we would have seen that. <laughs> not only was it snowing, I think we were basically inside the cloud pretty quickly. We, I remember that we couldn't see really more than 15 feet off the trail. I remember being kind of scared a little bit about because you know it just seemed like there was this abyss next to us we had no idea when we were on the edge of a precipice or anything like that but we joked around about it we took a series of photos that we called the battle to the death photos where we would pretend to be (laughs) grappling with one another in in order to throw someone into the abyss we did you know we'd brought like a few extra layers but again i have all these photos taken on a film camera that's how old i am of the three of us and i had at some point put on the jacket that i brought which was literally a windbreaker from my college soccer team and that was the (laughs) heaviest thing i had and we just kept plowing forward and the way mount washington works if i mean i'm guessing probably a lot of people out here aren't familiar with it but there's these little cabins and they're staffed they have like a staff on the mountain that and they'll feed you there but they think there must have been electricity, but there's no heat. And in the cabin, it's just plank beds, like, you know, just wooden slats with three wool blankets. So we, I think we were supposed to actually summit Mount Washington, which you can, you can actually drive to the top of it. You know, it's not, again, this isn't Mount Hood. But so we're going up this thing and getting snowed on, getting wet, just blindly plowing forward. And once we got to the tree line, it became apparent how bad of an idea this really was because the second we got above the trees, the wind was so strong and so cold that all of our now very wet clothing flash froze. So I have, I have pictures of us, <laughs> our pant legs billowed out and frozen in place. So we realized that we weren't going any farther, you know, probably the first smart decision we'd made. We did take the time to continue our series of battle to the death photos <laughs> up there above the tree line. And then we retreated back down below and made our way to uh, the cabin. And again, I, I don't remember ever being the slightest bit concerned about our safety, which seems crazy now. But we made it to the cabin. We had dinner there. And what I really remember was we could not get dry. And that became very unpleasant by the time it came time to go to sleep. We each had these three wool blankets, and I just could not get warm at all. And this was the coldest night I've ever spent. Didn't sleep at all. I think if I was ever actually concerned about my safety, it was that night thinking, man, this I'm really, really cold, and there's no way to warm up. But we all survived the night, and the next morning just went straight down. I did stop snowing. But we, I think it was pretty uneventful on the way down. We had a room at the lodge at the base where we immediately went and cranked up the thermostat to as high as it would go and warmed up. And the other thing I remember is that night we went out to a bar in some nearby New Hampshire town. And I remember we were playing pool and I picked up a newspaper that was lying around. And that's how I learned that the U.S. had retaliated against Afghanistan for the September 11th attacks. I remember there was a headline about, you know, bombing that the military had done. You know, this was pre-smartphone. So, yeah, that was uh, the end of that trip. And I think must have been the next morning we headed back down to the city. Dave, have you ever, like, gone back and, like, made it to the top of Mount Washington, like, whether you've driven or whatever? Yes, I would not try. That. Uh, there was a time about, let's see, it would have been seven, six or seven years later. I had a long, convoluted path here in between. But I actually have lived in New York twice. So after, which I'll tell you about in a second, after this, I ended up leaving New York, but a couple years later, moving back. And my same friend, Mark, wanted to sort of atone for our ill-fated trip. So we did it again. And it must have been 2006, maybe. 
and that time we did make it all the way to the top. But sort of hilariously with that first experience having been colored so much by our unpreparedness mark like radically overprepared for the next trip <laughs> and I, I can't remember what tiny year it was but he was i remember for weeks leading up to it he was like you got we got to wear all wool we got to have all this you know we got to be super prepared super warm and then of course it was like 70 and sunny the entire time and we were like stuck with all this wool <laughs> so, but uh we did make it to the top scott unfortunately he did not make it out for that but my friend dane came with us and what i most remembers that we didn't do this on purpose but no one had ever mentioned to dane that you can drive to the top so we made it all the way to the top sort of crested this little hill and you're suddenly in this basically parking lot with all this like touristy stuff and dane had no idea this was going to happen so (laughs) the second we like climbed over this little wall and he was confronted with the scene he was just astounded and so angry (laughs) (laughs) felt like those people hadn't earned it. <laughs> you earned it so much more. Did it feel worth it? Did it feel good to go back and top out and summit? Yeah, the whole was fun both times, honestly. I mean, and I, it's it's funny. I'm, you know, I'm in my early 40s now. Both of these happened in my 20s when I was uh, a little less beat up and I enjoyed it. I'm not a big hiker. It's just not something I do a whole lot of, but both of those trips were really fun. I don't regret the early one, although I do feel a uh, healthy shame about just our brazen idiocy (laughs) i love that moment where your clothes flash froze beyond the tree line that image is just like seared into my mind right now mine too i have pictures (laughs) (laughs) well we've got to share some of those pictures in the show notes here but gosh what a tale dave that's awesome thank you so much for sharing this with us the story is not over the story (laughs) continues this is like half of the story so dave mentioned that he goes back to new york dave what happened from there Well, so as you might imagine, the time immediately after September 11th, if you were living in New York, is a bit of a blur. We did a ton of stuff, uh, and the chronology is kind of hard for me to remember. And keep in mind, my poor brother, he was supposed to stay in the city for like a week and basically got stuck there. He didn't know how he was going to get home. I had lost my job. Everything was up in the air. So I can't quite remember what order this all happened in. But at some point, we also took a trip to Vermont in uh, a borrowed Volkswagen Beetle. And I think at that point, we decided that I was going to move back to Portland. And that's how Scott was going to get home. We were just going to do it together. And my girlfriend at the time, who was also living in New York, is originally from Aurora, Oregon, and she decided to come with us. So we were all going to do this together. We didn't have a car. And we were in Vermont on this other random trip. And I got the idea to we wanted, (laughs) we decided if we were going to have to buy a car to drive across the country after, you know, the whole world had changed. Why not do it with some style? So I had my eye on an eBay auction for a 1961 Lincoln Continental, which if you're (laughs) not familiar, is the model of car that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in, although ours was not a convertible. But anyway, we were in Vermont with this other friend of mine, found myself one morning at this friend's mom's cafe And they had an internet connection, which again, remember, this is 2001, like you didn't have the internet everywhere. And we thought, well, we're here, we've got a computer we can use, let's check in on this auction. And there were just a few minutes left, and another instance of 2001 YOLO, I bought a 1961 Lincoln for $2,000, which was a (laughs) massive amount of money for me at the time. So we loaded this thing up with as much stuff of mine and Scott's and Anna's that we could carry, uh, which was a lot. It's a big car. And then we just hit the road. And I think we hit the road, if I remember correctly, on October 11th, so exactly a month later. And almost immediately, 
ran into trouble. <laughs> One would imagine. Yeah, what what could go wrong? And I am a fairly accomplished amateur mechanic. I've, you know, in the 20 years since gotten better. At the time, I was marginally competent. The weather on October 11th, 2001 in New York City was quite warm unseasonably in contrast to our previous misadventure. So we barely made it out of the city itself before we broke down. We overheated and broke down on the side of the Merritt Parkway. There's video of this (laughs) (laughs) and of me just losing my mind uh, with stress. But we managed to get the car running again, limped it up to Amherst, Massachusetts, which is where I went to college and where uh, some friends of mine lived that were going to caravan with us across the country. Did a few repairs and then hit the road. And we made it all the way in this ridiculous car to Ogden, Utah, where the generator on the car, the bearings seized up and the generator crapped out. And I, you know, almost as shameful as the whole Mount Washington trip, I opted to not repair it myself, even though I probably could have. Uh, We were a little burned out by then. And we just rented a truck and a trailer and drove it the rest of the way to Portland. (laughs) On the way, (laughs) we stopped in LaGrande, where my youngest brother was in college and basically yanked him out of college. (laughs) (laughs) It was, again, nothing mattered. The world was, you know, it was just like, whatever. And Sean was not having a great time there in school. Here, two of his brothers and some other people show up in this ridiculous caravan of vehicles and they're like, hey, want to come home? And Sean was like, sure. And he left with us and never went back to Eastern Oregon University. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. We uh, made it the rest of the way home, and that was pretty much it. And I lived in Portland for another year or two before leaving once again and eventually find my way back to New York City, and then back to Portland, then to Minneapolis, and now once again back to Portland. (laughs) (laughs) It's a heck of a yarn, Dave. Yeah. Whatever happened to the car? That's a great question. As someone who's owned a number of interesting cars, I drove it actually as like a daily driver for a while. <laughs> it had a, a very rusty trunk lid, which is a very specific problem to that era of Lincoln. Uh, at the time, I did not know how to weld. And so I eventually, it was a silly problem, but because of this, the trunk lid had all these rust holes in it. I couldn't really carry anything in there in the rainy climate here in Portland. And uh, also, one of my post-New York moves from Portland, I had moved to Phoenix for a while with my youngest brother and needed money and hadn't taken the Lincoln with me. And so my parent it was the kind of car that people would, you know, swing by and like make offers on sometimes. And someone wanted to buy it. And my parents facilitated that for me. So I believe we sold it for 1500 bucks so i lost 500 bucks on the deal but that's not bad it was a fun car i mean if it was the kind of thing you know it gets horrible gas mileage <sighs> a great design though one of the all-time great u.s automotive designs i think i i think it's the only american car i've ever owned i much more gravitate towards old german cars but it felt like in the wake of september 11th it felt appropriate to buy a big old american car and set off on a long road trip across the country. Copious uh, Springsteen songs listened to on the way. <laughs> and Dave, kind of reflecting on this now, you said you have all these photos at the ready. This sounds like a pretty big moment in your personal history, this kind of misadventure on Mount Washington, then back-to-back misadventure across the country in this old car. How do you reflect on this now, many years later? Well, that's a great question. I, looking at the pictures, 
I and I'm I'm someone who does not like pictures of himself. I look, I think, kind of ridiculous. Uh, I was much skinnier, which is nice, but overall, I I look like kind of a doofus, I think, and was making a lot of kind of selfish decisions, grand gesture type of things. I think back to kind of what we put Anna through, and I feel like I was a terrible boyfriend. But I I don't know. She, I, you know, we're still friends, and I don't think she remembers it as a terrible adventure or anything. But I was very stressed out, and I think I just was just very doom and gloom. I, I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I should have at the time because I was very stressed out about were we going to make it and, you know, what was going to happen next and, you know, where was I going to find a job, things like that. And I, I really wish that I had been able to just enjoy it more in the moment because we were making you know, enjoying the moment types of decisions. But I wasn't really following through on that in terms of letting myself continue the experience. Instead, I was getting super neurotic and stressed out. And to answer your question, I look at those pictures and think about that time. And I think I am a better person now than I was then and probably more able to enjoy something like that with good humor rather than being a ball of stress the whole time. It's a good reflection. It's a great lesson there in living in the moment and enjoying the present moment, even if it's stressful or unpleasant at times. So that's great. Thank you for sharing that, Dave. Thanks for listening, guys. Now, we still have one more campfire story to share. But first, we're going to take a quick break. All right, folks, we are back with the final episode of our Campfire Stories series. But before we finish this up, Jamie, we have one more amazing story to share. Yeah, I actually have not heard this one yet, but it is from one of our listeners submitted via our podcast hotline. So I'm excited to check it out. Yeah, let's listen in. Hi, my name is Lisa Hoashi. I'm from Oregon. I grew up there. And today I wanted to tell the very unlikely way that I ended up climbing Mount Hood. In 2013, at 34 years old, I decided to quit my job, get rid of my apartment in Portland, Oregon, and take off on a year-long sabbatical. My plan was to do a lot of outdoor adventures in the Pacific Northwest and make the most of a, a summer there, and also go off and do some traveling around the world. About three months into my sabbatical, I was in Europe, and I fell in love with a man named Manel. He is a farmer on a farm north of Barcelona in Spain. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to stay with Manel very long because my visa ran out, and I had to continue on my sabbatical without him and say goodbye. And I really didn't know if traveling around, if our romance would last and being apart, but we went for it anyway. I ended up going to Patagonia and spending a lot of time traveling around there and doing lots of backpacking and adventuring. It was great. And we managed to keep up, actually. We Skyped nearly every day, and our romance and relationship continued to build. We decided that we would meet back in Oregon for the last month of my sabbatical. Manel was really excited to go to Oregon because thanks to the internet and being a farmer, he had seen Oregon's pictures of these gorgeous wheat fields with Mount Hood towering behind it. And he was bound and determined that if he was going to Oregon, he was going to climb Mount Hood. And he had experience climbing in the Pyrenees here in Spain. And he... um, 
And so he said, if we were going to Oregon, he was definitely climbing Mount Hood. And he was surprised that I had never climbed it. Well, I thought that climbing Mount Hood was really for way more serious people. I mean, I was an experienced backpacker and hiker, but I just always had a big respect for Mount Hood and uh, was kind of scared of it. I thought it was like pretty crazy to climb it. Um, but the more I started to learn about it, the more I realized that maybe it was possible and um, that maybe I could do it. And so I said, you know, like hell, he's going to go to my state and climb my mountain um, and I'm not going to go with him. So I decided that, okay, we we're going to do it. We met up in Oregon in mid-April. We immediately started getting to work with contacting friends and seeing if anyone knew of an experienced person who could help take us up, or if we really needed that, or if there was a guide we should hire, that sort of thing. In the end, a good friend of mine introduced us to a good friend of hers, who is an expert climber, and we went over to his house and over beers and a map, we started looking at what we were in for. And he basically assured us that with Manal's experience and with the shape that we were in, it would be a fairly straightforward hike for us if we had perfect weather conditions. He instructed us about the route and what kinds of gear to take, and we started putting our plan in place. A couple days later, sooner than we expected, the perfect weather window opened up. We rented a cabin right near Timberline, and that was our, our base camp. We set out for our hike in the middle of the night from Timberline Lodge and went up, and it, I had never done a climb like this, and I was it was crazy to be... <clears throat> walking up there in the night and um it was so cold and and just scary and when the sun finally came up i really started to get confidence uh seeing how far we had come and and what was next left to do and we started really believing that maybe we could do this we did eventually get to the top and if you've never been to the top of mount hood it is truly spectacular i could not believe how slender of a ridge it really is up there on that peak and how it just um, fell away on the other side. And just, you know, you could see the eagle's eye view of the Columbia River Gorge below and the vista of the amazing Cascades to the north. It was truly incredible. And we were also so scared and just thought we needed to get the heck out of there and down as fast as we could. We made the trek down safely and, um, and got back to base camp without a problem. I had told Manel at the beginning of our month together that I wanted to wait until the very end to make any decisions about where I would live or what I would do next or what would happen with our relationship until the very end because I just wanted to enjoy that time. But after we got down from Mount Hood, the next day I told him that I had decided I wanted to move back to Spain to be with him. Seeing him on the mountain and being in that experience with him, I had seen how incredible he was and how much I wanted to be on his team and what a great team we were. So I moved back to Spain. We're now married and we have two beautiful children and we are definitely going to take them up to the Mount Hood when they get older. We live on the farm. Manel still farms and I have opened up my life coaching practice helping other people take their big leaps in life. 
During this pandemic time, in the evenings, we've been tuning into your podcast and listening to your stories around the campfire about outdoor adventures in the Pacific Northwest and getting ideas about our future adventures and also remembering our past ones. So thank you so much for that. <laughs> and I'll be so stoked if you do share this on your podcast because I didn't tell Manel that I was doing it. Oh, man, that is just too good. Surprise, Manel, your story is on the podcast. I love that story, too. You know, I'm a sucker for a good romance story in nature. It, it had it all. I, I love that. So thank you, Lisa, for sharing that story with us and sharing your love and passion for the outdoors with everyone here. Yeah, I mean, it's a great story. Also, I mean, everything about it rocks. I listened to this story before recording this episode. I knew it was the story that I wanted to end the Campfire Stories series with just because it's a love story and it has twists and turns and a big leap and also some really gorgeous visual kind of descriptions of a place that I really love and you really love, which is this gorgeous mountain that, you know, if I walk in my neighborhood and peek through the sidewalks and the houses and everything just right, I can still see Mount Hood from where I live. And it kind of towers over the city and is a landmark everybody knows. And I just think the story is really special. I'm really thankful that Lisa took the time to submit it because it's too good not to share. Of course, we don't want you to stop sharing stories, even though this is the technical end of our Campfire Stories series. If you want to share your stories of great adventures or any of your experiences out here outdoors or traveling around the Pacific Northwest, do not hesitate to share it with us here. Yeah, the podcast hotline is not going anywhere, so you can still call in at 503-221-4345. And I'll say that a second time, 503 one four three four five leave us a voicemail there or you can submit a recording to podcasts with an s at oregonian.com so folks until next time you can subscribe to peak northwest wherever you get your podcasts watch our videos on the oregonians youtube channel and of course follow us on instagram at peak northwest this episode of the podcast was produced by me jim ryan alongside Jamie Hale and Dave Killen. Many thanks, of course, to Dave for coming on the show and to Lisa for submitting a lovely story. Stay safe and stay healthy, everyone. Until next time, we leave you with this 10 Seconds of Zen. <laughs>